So good morning. My name is Brianna Wheeland. Um, I'm wife of John, as Brad mentioned, mother to Olivia, small group leader to some here and friend to some more. And if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you and have a chance for us to get to know each other. Can I be honest with you all? I have been going through some stuff lately, and I'm talking about stuff. I wouldn't necessarily say it's your typical identity crisis, but in some ways it is exactly that, and an identity crisis. Who am I? What am I made to do? Who am I made to be? And once I figure that out, how can I actually live that out in my daily, often mundane, wake up, get dressed, go to work life? I've been ruminating on a lot of things for a while, a couple of years at least, but things really began to culminate in the last few months. And where I had felt challenged before, I really felt like this time I was struggling and failing. Granted, there was and is a lot going on. I'm a new mom. My husband and I are both back to work. Our daughter needs to be delivered and picked up from daycare several days of the week. Work got demanding, and all of a sudden one day I felt overwhelmed and almost debilitated from walking out my front door. It was bad. (laughs) I was not in a fun place. And then I don't think it's a coincidence at all. We started our 40 Days of Destiny series for Lent, and Brad began preaching on the very questions I was struggling with. At one point of one of his sermons, he made a point that God wants to expose my true identity, my my true self to me, so that I can live out of that place. I turned to my husband, and I literally started crying right there in the sermon. That has never happened. And I whispered to my husband, that is what I want. So I cried. I tried to pray. I asked others to pray for me in this prayer alcove and elsewhere. And I even started seeing a counselor. And an amazing thing happened. God has actually met me. Now, I hate to say this, but I am closest to God when I am a mess. What a disappointment. I don't actually want to meet God in my brokenness, in my yucky, ugly cry. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That kind of mess. I want to meet him in the nice, neat, clean feng shui room that has clean lines, a crisp paint job, minimal furniture, but classy. And a faint scent of something clean and refreshing, maybe lavender or fresh laundry. But spoiler alert, y'all, that is not where he found me this time. And it is often not where I have encountered him before. I say all of this as an introduction to let you know that I am a hot mess right now. But in many ways, I have been so excited to share this with you because I feel God's presence in my life right now. And that's exciting to me, and I hope it's exciting and encouraging to you, too. And my hope is that what I share with you this morning will offer some encouragement, some insight, and perhaps give you something to walk out of here with, think on, and perhaps have a a chance to experience God through. So what I would like to talk to you about today, the difference that Jesus makes in my life, is that first... Jesus makes a difference in my life. And I can honestly tell you that right here, right now. The specific difference I want to talk to you about today is that a relationship with Jesus gives me more freedom than I have ever known to live a life out of faith and a life out of love than one that is lived out of fear. 
And I think the real distinction, the real choice for me is that I have two options to decide on for how to live my life every day. I can either live my life out of faith or I can live it out of fear. Now hear me out. I've thought about this some, and reflecting on my life, I have realized that so many of the decisions in my life have been made out of fear. Fear of failure, fear of change, fear of rejection, fear of disappointing others and doing something that was not expected, fear of being unique or sticking out, fear of hurting someone else's feelings many times even at the expense of my own. Fear of being bad at something. Fear of making the wrong decision. Fear of being poor. Fear of God not loving me. So many life decisions made out of fear, and this while saying I was following Christ. Now what I'm here to tell you today is that this is not the life or the shell of a life that God is calling me to. And I don't believe it's the life he's calling you to either. So let's begin by first discussing three foundational truths about who I think God is and what his love means for us. And then we're going to spend some time talking about living lives out of faith instead of out of fear. I'd like us to look at 1 John 4, and the three foundational truths I want to briefly discuss are these. First, that God is love, and he loved us first with his perfect love. Second, that when God sent Jesus to die as an atonement for our sins, it was a model of God's perfect love and gave us access to God's perfect love. Jesus is God's, uh, the model of God's perfect love. And third, once we acknowledge Jesus' death as an atonement for our sins and we can accept God's perfect love, we are commanded, and I would say we feel compelled, to love one another as God has loved us. Because of God's perfect love, we are empowered to love one another. So let's read verses 7 through 19 of chapter 4. They're in your bulletin, and they're also on the screens. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now let's start with the first point. God is love, and he loved us first with his perfect love. Verses 7 and 8 read, 
Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And verse 19, we love because he first loved us. The point I want to make here is that God loved us first. One of the commentaries I read on this passage put it like this. Because life and love come from God, it is God's activity and not our own behavior and efforts that defines the essence of love. This is liberating, folks. It means that we do not have to manufacture love for God. He loved us first. Our only job is to respond to it. Now let me explain this in the only way I know how on this one, to tell you what this is not like. I was raised under a very strong moral Christianity, and what I mean by that is that there was a lot of right and wrong when I was young. So whether intended or not, I felt I had to be good or have the strongest faith to get God to love me. I thought I had to love him first by doing everything right, not breaking any rules, towing the moral line. No lying, no swearing, no smoking, no drinking. I think the saying goes, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with boys who do. (laughs) It was confession of sins to the point where I stayed up nights worrying if I confessed all of my sins. It was crying to my mom when I was really small because I was worried my brother was going to go to hell. That really happened. And one specific example I can recall quite clearly is when I received prayer to heal my very bad and chronic childhood asthma. I would get pneumonia and have to be hospitalized and put in an oxygen tent at least once, if not twice a year, during the whole of my childhood. So the elders, the selected leaders of our church, kind of like our church council here at Mosaic, um, they came to our house, they surrounded me, they anointed me with oil, and they prayed over me that I would be healed of my terrible condition. And just to put this out there, I believe in healing. Um, I've seen God work miracles and people healed. But do you know what happened that day when they prayed over me? Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. And I remember hoping and praying and trying to believe, and if I believed enough that it would work, that I would be healed. And I really wanted to be healed. But nothing happened, and I felt like I had failed in some way. I felt like I didn't have enough faith for God to heal me, and that's why nothing happened. I thought the onus was on me to compel God's love for me. But what First John tells us is that this is not up to us, and in fact it cannot be up to us to love God first and earn his love. God is love. Thus, any step we take toward God is in response to that love. Charles Spurgeon, a a preacher from the late 1800s, puts it like this. Yet we must not try to make ourselves love our Lord, but look to Christ's love first, for his love to us will beget in us love to him. I know that some of you are greatly distressed because you cannot love Christ as much as you would like to do. And you keep on fretting because it is so. Now, just forget your own love to him and think of his great love to you. And then immediately, your love will come to something more like that which you would desire it to be. So, God loved us first and perfectly. And our ability to respond to it allows us to live in that love and not in fear. The second point follows the first. When God sent Jesus to die for our sin... It was a model of God's perfect love and gave us access to God's perfect love. 
Jesus is the model of God's perfect love. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The first thing that we need to discuss here is that the love we are talking about is not just defined by the sacrifice of Jesus. It is also defined by the giving of the Father. It was a sacrifice of the Father to send his Son to us. And not only to send, to the, not only to send his Son, but to pour out the judgment that we deserved on his Son. Another commentary put it like this. We need to appreciate this fully and receive the fatherly love God has to give us. Some of us, for whatever reason, have come to think of God the Father as aloof and mean, perhaps the so-called angry God of the Old Testament. In this wrong thinking, many imagine they prefer the nice and loving Jesus instead. But the Father loves us too, and the love Jesus showed in his ministry was the same love God the Father has toward us. The other point we have to understand about God sending his son as a model of perfect love is what Jesus coming to earth and dying for us accomplishes for us. It allows us to approach God in a way we never could before. See, Jesus knew he wasn't just coming to earth to know us and teach us and live among us. He knew that coming to earth also meant he would die for us, which is hard for us to really fathom and appreciate sometimes. Jesus coming to earth to die for us was vulnerable both on the part of Jesus and on the part of God the Father. God and Jesus both knew that humanity could not be reconciled to God without, without God providing a way for us to himself. And that way was Jesus. So it was not just the vulnerability of Jesus being willing to die, but it was also the vulnerability of the Father to expose himself to the devastation of the loss and death of his only son. I think we often reflect on how this shows the love of Jesus, but John wants us to understand it also shows the love of God the Father. God loved us enough to send Jesus to take our place. And in this, Jesus is the bridge that allows us access to God. So by acknowledging Jesus as the model of perfect love of the Father expressed to us, we can feel free to live in that expression of love and not in fear. Finally, the third point is this, that once we acknowledge Jesus' death as an atonement for our sins and as our access point to God, we are commanded, and I would argue we feel compelled, to love one another as God has loved us. Because of God's perfect love, we are empowered to love one another. Verses 11 and 12 say this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And also the, verse of, and six, excuse me, and also the end of verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Our opportunity to, re to respond to God's love is all around us. We are called to love one another and live in love. Now, don't get me wrong, that is no small task. If you recall, Brad recently preached about when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples the night he was betrayed. And when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and showed such great love and servanthood to them, we might have expected him to conclude by gesturing to his own feet and asking who among them 
was going to do to him what he had just done for them. But instead, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The proper way to love God in response to his love for us is to go out and love one another. So how do we do that? How do we live in love? I don't think it's rocket science, actually. And I think most of the time, we know what the loving thing to do is. But that doesn't make it easy. And loving others requires time. It requires energy. It requires commitment. Loving others is an intentional act that often takes much from us. But it is what we are called to do. And I would say in my own life, Loving others is what actually gives me meaning and purpose and helps tap into my true self and my real identity. A few years ago, we moved into this neighborhood just a few blocks away from this building. And in order to get to and from work, I have to walk 52nd Street to catch the subway, which if you know 52nd Street or you've ever walked on it during the day, you know it can get quite bustling, hectic, and frankly, a bit crazy. You got street vendors on the sidewalks, patrons of stores, and all sorts of people all over trying to get the bus or the subway or get home. So on my way home from work one late afternoon, a woman stopped me and asked me for some kind of donation, money for a cup of coffee or a token. I don't really remember. We got to chatting, and she mentioned going to church, and I said, oh, yeah, I actually go to church really close to here. And she responds, honey, you go to church? Will you pray for me? What? Huh? Here? Now? Folks, that was the last thing I expected to come out of her mouth. People were bumping into me just to get past us while we were talking. It was the most inopportune location for saying some prayer. I was taken aback for a moment, and I really struggled. God, I don't want to pray for this lady. (laughs) Not here. Not now. This is not how or where I pray. Well, tough. So I caught my breath. I said, sure. I asked if I could put my hand on her shoulder. I reluctantly closed my eyes, and I said a prayer for her in the most sincere way I could in that moment. And the minute I said amen, I opened my eyes. There, standing right next to her, was another woman. Her eyes locked on mine, and before I even formulate some kind of thought, she goes, I want some of that. So I said another prayer. (laughs) Loving people is not pretty most of the time. It is not easy. It is not comfortable. It's often not newsworthy. But it is what is meant to distinguish us as recipients of a perfect love and recipients of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So let's bring this all together to have a brief discussion on how we are able to live in love and not in fear. First, God is love and loved us first and perfectly. Second, as a model of perfect love, God sent his son to live and die for us so that we might have access to this perfect love. And finally, we are empowered to love one another as God has loved us. So let's come back to my whole point on the difference that Jesus can make in our lives, that the love of Jesus and the love of the Father for us frees us to live in love and faith and not in fear. Let's look at one more verse, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love 
drives out fear. When I was younger, I wanted all of the answers. I wanted to know the black and white truth of the Bible. I wanted certainty, and I wanted clarity. Who's in and who's out, God? I'm right, and they're wrong. And the more I get to know the person of Jesus and the perfect love of the Father, the less sure I am about all of those distinctions. But the thing, the person I am growing more sure of is Jesus. So let's start there, okay? Jesus commanded us to love those around us as the Father loved us, as perfectly as we can. When in doubt, I choose love. When in fear, I want to choose faith and live in love. I want to grow more comfortable in the discomfort and be reminded that I am commanded to love, not to judge. I don't have to be afraid because there is no fear in love. No fear. The command says simply to love. And not to love as long as you agree with someone or as long as you belong to the same Bible study or faith or religion or sexual identity. It is simply to love. And there is no fear in love. That is exactly what it says. There is no fear in love. We don't have to be afraid we're getting it wrong if we choose love. Doesn't that take so much pressure off of you, off of me? I am not the judge. That is not my job. I simply get to choose love, and by doing so, fear is banished. Another way of getting at this love-fear dynamic is from a leading qualitative researcher named Dr. Brene Brown. She's done a lot of work on the power of vulnerability. If you're curious for more, I would definitely recommend checking out her TED Talks on YouTube. Just a warning, might change your life. So Dr. Brown has done a lot of research on vulnerability, and what she found is that people she described as living wholeheartedly, those individuals who have, tend to have a sense of, strong sense of love and belonging tend to have two qualities. First, they have the courage to be imperfect, and second, they fully embrace vulnerability. This is how she describes it. And so these folks have very simply the courage to be imperfect, they had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we cannot practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. Another thing was they had connection, and as a result of authenticity, they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which you have to absolutely do for connection. The other thing they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say I love you first, the willingness to do something where there are no guarantees, the willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram, the willingness to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was essential. Isn't this what we're talking about? In those spaces of being unsure or of being in doubt, leaning in and choosing to love from a vulnerable and authentic place instead of pulling back and self-protecting. Loving in the way God and Jesus have shown us is vulnerable. 
So what I conclude from Dr. Brown's research is this. In order to live wholeheartedly, in order to live in love, we have to come from a place of vulnerability, of acknowledgement of our imperfection, of authenticity. And what our passage in 1 John tells us, I believe, is that this is exactly what we are built for, capable of, and commanded to do. Love as we have been loved in an authentic, genuine way. Perfect love casts out fear so we can choose love and banish fear. When we're tempted to judge, we are challenged to love instead. When we are faced with the opportunity to gossip about someone, we can instead choose to act and live in love on that person's behalf. When we want to make a snarky or sarcastic comment to our spouse or our friend, we can instead use it as an opportunity to show love and speak in love. When we want to reject someone because we disagree with their point of view, we can instead come from a place of openness and admit that we don't have all of the answers. And we can do all of this and be recharged when this type of love takes so much from us because we know we are loved first and are operating out of a storehouse of love that is continually and constantly being refreshed and restored by the perfect love of the Father. Now, I want to note that all of this living in love and faith certainly is not easy, and I want to acknowledge that living in love and being vulnerable exposes us to hurt, to disappointment, and to sometimes not being met with openness or the same vulnerability that we are offering others. I get that. I've been in that place where I've been vulnerable and thereafter been wounded by someone. And it sucks. But the interesting thing about Dr. Brown's research to me was that upon her discoveries about vulnerability, she actually conducted more research and concluded that what some of us do instead of embracing vulnerability is that instead we numb emotion. We numb our grief. We numb our shame. We numb our disappointment. And what she found was this. You cannot numb those hard feelings without numbing the other affects, our emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those emotions of grief, those emotions of shame, those emotions of disappointment, we also numb joy, we numb gratitude, we numb happiness. And then we're miserable, and we're looking for purpose and meaning, and then we feel vulnerable. So then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin, and it becomes a dangerous cycle. (laughs) So when we numb these emotions of grief and hurt and disappointment, we also numb our capacity for joy, for gratitude, for happiness. And the comfort I believe that we can take is that because we are loved first and have had perfect love modeled for us, we can continually be restored by re-engaging God's perfect love and living in that place. With faith, we don't have to be the source of the love. We are merely the conduit or the pipeline if we just open ourselves to let that love flow through us. As I mentioned earlier in our talk, I've been doing some counseling, and it has been life-changing. It really, it really has. And as I thought about this sermon and the message I'm sharing with you today and the whole message of the challenge between faith and fear, vulnerability and self-protection, I realized that the place I have always self-protected and guarded my faith, and I would say even hidden my faith, is my work. And the irony is that work 
is what triggered my pursuit of counseling. At least it was the direct trigger. And now my counselor and I are digging all my other stuff. Woo-hoo. But work is where it started. This whole vulnerability thing gives me a lot of anxiety. It really does. But I think what Dr. Brown got to was that this place of vulnerability, that's the space that gives us meaning, that gives us the opportunity to be the real us with people, which is really scary, but when we do it, it's also connecting and life-giving. Yes, there is fear, but if we take God at his word, perfect love casts out fear, and God's love gives us the freedom to take those chances out of perfect love, and because we're human, imperfect love too. So I feel like in the past few years, God has been encouraging me, nudging me, to open up, especially more at work, to be more vulnerable, to not edit myself, as Brad has been encouraging us to do. So I've been trying, and it's really hard. But it has also yielded better results than I expected. One example I look back on is a relationship that began developing soon after I joined my job about three and a half years ago but didn't really flourish until a year or so ago. This woman, let's call her Anne, she and I got to know each other when our offices were near each other. It began with small interactions, good mornings, how was your weekend? But at some point, we did begin chatting about deeper things. My parents do some awesome work in Ethiopia, raising money for water projects, and I think Anne got a sense of my background and the passions of my family from a small fundraiser I did at work. And we began to talk more about life, experiences, challenges that we face at work and otherwise. And probably a month before I went out on maternity leave, a little over a year ago, I got a sense from God that I should be more candid with Anne about my faith. I didn't really like that idea. I thought, God, we're just getting to know each other. If I layer that in, she's going to reject me or think I'm preaching at her or I'm weird or she'll become distant and I'm afraid. And finally, now when we're actually becoming friends. But I still had this feeling. And then one day we got to talking, and at some point she effectively asked me, Brianna, what's your deal? What's the secret that you can speak the way you do, have the perspective that you do? You seem lighter. And would you think I rose to the challenge upon this very clear open door? Of course not. I gave some superficial answer about how I have healthy relationships and people that love me, blah, blah, blah. All somewhat true, but I knew not the answer I was supposed to give. So I thought about it some more and still felt like God was like, hey, time is ticking, and it literally was. Olivia was due in about a week. (laughs) So my last week at work arrived, and God is still nudging, and I'm like, okay, God, okay, I'll say something before I leave as if I have any control over the imminent arrival of my child. Now that I think about it, maybe that's why she didn't come early. (laughs) So I can't remember. It must have been the last or second to last day at work, and I was like, I just have to do this. I know I do. So I call Anne, and I see if she'd be willing to stop by at some point so we could chat about something, and she's like, sure. So she comes over, and I proceed to stand up and close the door, which at my work is usually like, oh, God. It's the principal's office feeling, you know? Anyway, we sit down, and I was like, so you remember what you asked me the other day about what makes me a little different? Well, I wasn't totally honest with you, and I need you to know before I go and have a human and leave for a few months (laughs) that the reason I am the way I am is because of my faith. 
that God and Jesus actually make a difference in my life. And it has been a long, long road, but I really like Jesus, and I want you to know that. And this isn't meant to preach at you, but to tell you I wasn't completely honest with you the other day, and I want to be. And I need you to know that that's the reason I sometimes appear to handle things differently, or that I can treat people with a certain amount of kindness, even when, let's put this nicely, I don't prefer them. And I just felt like I needed to share this with you before I left, and I would love for this to be the beginning of a great conversation, not an end that turns you off to our friendship. And did the world explode? Not at all. She responded so gently and thoughtfully and said, you know, it is amazing you're mentioning this to me now because another friend was just talking to me about her experience with spirituality and faith. And she was really touched. She had tears in her eyes, and I could tell so appreciated my honesty with her. And instead of her rejecting me, which was my fear, she embraced me, literally. And I would say that was the beginning of a real friendship that continues to today. When I decided to start counseling a couple of months ago, she was the person at work that I told about it. And when Brad challenged us to pray for six individuals during Lent, she was one of them. And I told her she was one of them, which is something I've never done before. She actually would tell me at different times what I could pray for her for. And when I mentioned I was telling this story this morning and going to share this with you, she looked at me and she said, Brianna, I think about that conversation all the time. And it has had a huge impact on my life in the last year. What I'm saying is this. That line that we all draw based on fear and faith, whether to speak and be honest or to hold back, that's the deciding line. Do I act out of my fear of, oh man, this person is going to judge me or this isn't going to go well or I might fail? Or do I act out of faith and open myself to the real possibility of God delivering? Guys, sometimes really delivering. Of a relationship developed or of a prayer answered or of an opportunity discovered. That is the tension we're faced with in big and small ways every day. And yes, sometimes we will be rejected or we will fail, but it will be in a place of authenticity and faith, and it might hurt, but I also think God will meet us in that place in a new way. And when we have a success or a win, that is one brick in the wall that this faith over fear stuff is really worth it. That's what it is to live authentically and wholeheartedly and live in love, as 1 John puts it. Let's banish fear. It is a shell of the individuals we are made to be. For me, I choose faith. I choose love. Now, there's a beautiful quote from Theodore Roosevelt that Dr. Brown used in one of her talks that I would love to share with you, and I think sums up everything we have been talking about well, and it does it much more poetically than I ever could. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. But when he's in the arena, at best he wins, and at worst he loses. But when he fails... When he loses, he does so daring greatly. 
Isn't this what we are called to? Lives of daring greatly. Lives of fullness and vulnerability, not perfect, but in fact marred with dust and blood and sweat, but in the arena nonetheless. I have lived the shell of a life in fear, and it is an empty, inauthentic place that does not reveal the real me or the true identity of who I am and who God made me to be. I choose instead faith and love and the fullness that comes with it. I want to walk into the arena. Who's with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us in this place. Thank you for meeting us, meeting me in the midst of my messy life. Thank you for your perfect love, for Jesus, and for the ability and opportunity to practice and model your love to others. Empower us to live lives of faith and not lives of fear. Comfort us when we fail and grow us as we live in love. In your name, amen.